Hey, my name is Archie Engeldale, and I have the privilege of uh, being on our team here and being able to share with you guys this morning what I'm learning in God's Word in Romans chapter 7 as we continue this series on revealing the righteousness of God. Uh, friends online, uh, friends in Edgewood, we thank you for being with us this morning as well. And um, before we get started, I'd just like to pray for us, and we're going to dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your text. I thank you so much for the power of your Word that changes our hearts. And um, Father, be with our friends in the room and online in Edgewood as, as we uh, just learn what it looks like um, to just have sin identified in our life and how exceedingly sinful sin really is and how it can destroy us, um, but how you can save us and how your grace is greater. Uh, Father, may I make much of you and less of me. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. And so last week, uh, Cody started Romans chapter 7. He did a fantastic job articulating what it looked like to being released from the law and being bound to Christ and what it looks like for us as we walk in a new life with Christ, how we bear fruit for righteousness and not bearing fruit to death. And so if you missed that message, I pray that you go back and check that out so you can stay up to date and be caught up in what we're learning through the book of Romans. And so I'm going to be doing Romans 7, 7 through 13 this morning. So if you want to just mark that. Um, to get started, I'm going to just start right off the bat in verse 7. And so Paul says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So it's pretty explanatory, but I want to jump to Romans 3.20 as just a scripture reference here. So let's read Romans 3.20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We cannot, so we cannot keep enough rules to save ourselves. But what we see here in Romans 7, uh, 7 is that the law gives sin a name. So it's identifying what sin is. Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we can't do wrong without the law telling us right from wrong. We can't transgress against something that we don't know is evil or that we're not supposed to do something. And so, in a sense, the law is like a mirror that is revealing our inner man that shows how dirty we really are. Note that Paul didn't use murder here. He didn't use stealing. He didn't use adultery in this discussion. He goes straight to coveting which this is the last of the Ten Commandments, and it differs from the other nine in that it talks about an inward attitude of our heart. It differs because it's an inward attitude, not an outward action. So covetousness leads to the breaking of all the other commandments. I found this word. I'm not smart enough to use this word without getting the definition. So insidious. So that's a great definition of what covetousness is. So the definition of insidious is causing harm in a way that is gradual or not easily noticed. And so an insidious sin is covetous that we hardly recognize that slips in our own life. It gradually slips in. And so why is coveting a sin? Well, at its root, coveting is a result of envy, yearning to possess or desiring something that's not yours, which once it takes root in our heart, it leads to worse sins. But Jesus even reiterated this thought in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that lust in the heart is every bit as sinful as committing adultery in Matthew 5, 28. So essentially, Paul's argument right off the bat in verse 7 is that the law is not sinful because it's just providing an awareness of sin. And so I'm going to put this in redneck terms for myself and many of you in the room. So an MRI machine reveals what? It reveals things in our body that could harm us, right? An x-ray machine reveals a broken bone. 
So I had personal experience with both of these. So as a child, I made a foolish choice and broke a bone in my hand and I had to get a cast, okay? As I got older, I got diagnosed with testicular cancer. And so I had to have many machines reveal parts of my body that were I needed to be healed from. But if it wasn't for the machine to reveal what was wrong, we wouldn't know what was wrong, to have a treatment plan and so I can be healed. So the law is just revealing sin, just as the MRI machine revealed I had cancer. Y'all see the picture? Okay, so cancer is cancer and sin is sin. I did, if I would have minimized the importance and the seriousness of cancer, what would have happened? It would have killed me if I didn't take it seriously. So in verse 8 and 9, we see how Paul explains on how the law arouses sin. Verse 8 says, But sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The law gives sin its power. And in another sense, it is the awareness of breaking the law that makes sin a conscious reality to us all. And since we have that sinful nature, since we uh, are drawn to things that we're told to stay away from as a magnet draws to steel, many of you parents in the room could already be thinking about some things that you could easily say kids to stay away from. What do they want to do, right? And so I've got to tell a funny on myself. And so uh, one thing that I really struggled with as a child um, is grocery store going by the meat market in the shopping cart. I would reach out and stab my finger in all the meat packages. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but many of you know, like, that was fun. Like, but I was told not to do it, but I would continue to do that because I thought it was cool and it was fun. So I, I want to thank, even yesterday, my daughter loves candy, okay? She's a candy freak. Okay, she sniffs out candy like a coon going to a trash can, okay? I promise you, she don't have to be downwind of it. She just smells it. And you tell her no more candy. Oh, baby, you just get back and hide and watch. She will find it. She loves candy. So why? Why would you have newly fresh painted park benches or fresh concrete somewhere and have signs on it that say, do not touch? Sit back and watch. Why? Because we have rebellious hearts. Amen? It's, it's a struggle, right? Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, before it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Friends, we're naturally rebellious. We're naturally rebellious. Verse 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So commentaries may refer to this was a time in Paul's life, way when he was really young, before he ever learned the rigorous demands of the law. That, that he truly lived by for so many years prior to his conversion to Christianity. Um, some commentaries refer this could talk, be talking about Israel prior to the Ten Commandments uh, when the, law, the Mosaic Law was given. Um, even you could link it all the way back to Adam and Eve before they, were, before they fell in temptation in Genesis 3. But therefore, we, we all have rebellious hearts. It's been that way since the beginning. That's the point here. So... I want you to read uh, verses 10 and 11 with me. The law is used by sin. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seized an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. The law cannot give life, my friends. It can only show the sinner that he is guilty and condemned. So the law activates sin in two senses. I want you to hear this. It stimulates sin as a power in our life and it arouses inside of us a desire to do what we know is wrong. Secondly, it convicts us when we sin because we know the commandments that we have broken. But I want you to look at this way in these four, four different ways. I want to show you on what happened with not only Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 and the fall of man, but 
put put yourself in here when I'm when I'm talking these four points. I want you to put yourself in these these situations on areas where you have been deceived. And so the first thing I want you to see is how sin destroys us by deception. Think about all the times that we have fallen short and, and been deceived to taste sin on how the enemy, even our flesh, has deceived us. So God told them to stay away from what? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Because it will kill you. What does Satan say to Eve? You will not surely die. Well, what happened? Their eyes were open to knowing good and evil and death entered. Second thing, sin falsely promises satisfaction. How many times have we been tempted and, and fell short into sin and the satisfaction that we received was nowhere close to what we thought it was going to be? We were falsely promised. Eve said the fruit looked pleasing to the eye and it was good for food. She desired it, she took it, and she ate of it. Thirdly, sin falsely claims a good excuse. This is my favorite one. Blame shifting. What did Eve say? He said, Satan made me do it. What did Adam say? She made me do it. How often do we blame shift our sins on someone else? Well, I wouldn't have done that if my wife was spending more time with me. Or I wouldn't have done that if my husband would have spent more time with me. How many times do we blame it on somebody else? We're not owning the sin. Fourthly, sin falsely gives an escape from punishment. Their eyes were opened to the sin and they hid, covering their shame with fig leaves. Friends, we cannot hide from the consequences of our sin. We can't hide from it. So, it isn't the law that deceives us, my friends, but, it's the, but it is the sin that uses the law as an occasion for rebellion. This is why Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth sets us free, my friend, from the deceptions of sin. So Cody mentioned last week on how um, as we abide with the Lord daily, we're going to bear fruit, Okay. Apart from abiding with the Lord, we can't bear fruit. So are we feeding our flesh or are we feeding the Spirit? Are we growing? Are we living in the light? So a question we ask all the time around here is, what are you reading in God's Word? And so I can look back at the times that I was in a funk, I was in a dark place, and I've had many conversations with others that would say, brother, I'm in a bad spot. I'm, I'm really in a bad spot. I'm in a ditch right now. I don't even know which direction to go. What's the first question that we're going to ask you? What have you been reading in God's Word lately? Because as we live in the dark and we're not reading God's word, do you expect to be in any other condition? No, as we live in the light, as we're abiding daily, as we're feeding our soul, feeding our spirit with God's word, we look healthy and we know the truth. The truth will set us free. We can't know the truth if we're not reading the truth, my friends. We have to stay in God's word so we know where the truth comes. Verses 12 and 13, Paul is showing us that the Law is very serious. We see the seriousness of sin, of the law. Verse 12 and 13 say this, The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So I found this, and I thought it was really interesting, and I thought it was appropriate for this. It says, Though the law of Moses is no way to be viewed as something sinful, it does serve the purpose of making us painfully conscious of our sin. This is precisely why legislation can never produce truly godly living. Human nature being what it is, no legal code has the power to produce a truly godly life. Real goodness then cannot be legislated. It has to arise from a deeper motivation within. Friends, we know as Christ followers that deeper motivation is a regenerated heart. 
in Christ Jesus. Paul's argument is huge here. So you can't forget about his original audience, the first century Jew that would uh, be the rigorous demands of following the law and even the, the church there in Rome that knows what rules are, that knows what it is to follow rules. Paul's saying the law is not sinful. It is holy, it is just, and it is good. So what have we seen so far? The law reveals sin, it arouses sin, and then the sin will kill us. We see how sinful sin really is when it can use something good like the, like the law to produce tragic results in our hearts. It's exceedingly sinful. It's beyond measure. Why didn't Paul use any other words here? He didn't use exceedingly horrible, exceedingly deadly, because there's no other word worse than sin. You have to call it what it is. Sin is sin. And the problem is not with the law. The problem is with our sinful nature, our hearts. And we're a slave, we're a slave to that sin apart from Jesus Christ. So this is what I've learned about myself as just growing as a Christian, and even what I've learned from others being in the ministry. I've learned that many unsaved people know that there is such thing as sin. Many unsaved people know that, but they do not realize the sinfulness of sin. Many Christians may not realize the true nature of sin. We can excuse our sins with words like mistakes or weaknesses, but God condemns our sins and tries to get us to see that they are exceedingly sinful. So hear this. Until we realize how wicked sin really is, we will never want to oppose it. We will never want to expose it. We will never want to put it to death and live in victory in Jesus Christ. We have to recognize that sin is wicked. Here's a quote that you have heard from the stage, you have heard on Wednesday nights, possibly heard it in a regeneration, and you possibly read it in a devotional that just came out in Hebrews that we're going through in your email box. But look at this quote. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You can't say that any better. Think about that carrot that's dangled in front of your face, and you've been deceived, and you've been enticed, and you've been tricked. And you grabbed a hold of that carrot, and you realized, I'm, oh man, I'm deeper than I want to be, and I've been here longer than I want to be, and it's costing me so much, and I don't know how to go. I don't know how to get out of this. It will destroy us. Now, friends, Edgewood Online, friends in the room, you'd be like, man, Archie, you're just going to beat me up on sin for 20 minutes? Like, no, I want you to see the wickedness of our sin. But where's the hope in all this, right? Glad you asked. Here it is. Our hope is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. My goal this morning for us is to not just to say, yeah, I'm a filthy sinner, but I want you to recognize and understand what God's grace truly is. Understand God's grace. The Lord put a book in my hand roughly five weeks ago, and I'm so thankful for this book. And Lord knew what he was doing because I didn't know I was teaching this text when I started reading this book. But it's called Grace is Greater by Kyle Eidelman. Kyle Eidelman. And this book is fantastic on just understanding and accepting God's grace in many areas of our life. But the majority of what I'm going to share in the latter part of this message is straight out of chapter one of this book. Here's the first quote I want you to see. Our ability to appreciate God's grace is in direct correlation to the degree in which we acknowledge our need for it. The more I recognize the ugliness of my sin, the more I can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. The Bible holds up a mirror and confronts us with the reality of our sin. How true is that? One thing I want you to catch here, and you heard me say it earlier about how the Bible is a mirror for our hearts. If we're not reading God's word and we're not in the Bible, how can we use it as a mirror? 
How do we know where the truth is? So are you using uh, the world as a mirror? Are you using what you're reading and the shows that you're watching as a mirror to make you feel better about yourself or, or worse? The only way we can examine our hearts and allow the Bible to be a mirror is if we actually have to open our Bibles and read God's word. Romans 6, 14 says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. Friends, sin loses its power when we accept God's grace. It loses its power. So here's a question that I would ask men that the Lord would put in my life, either in discipleship or um, in a small group, or even men that I come across on the street that would give me a chance to talk to them, is I would ask, hey, what's your struggles? What's your crutch? What do you run to when you get anxious or tired or stressed? What, what, what do you go to feel good? Well, if the Lord allows it, and they open up, majority of the time they would show their baggage. They would show what they carry, okay? But here's something that I've always noticed. Nobody ever opens up the ditty bag. You know that little bag that you take? Uh, if you've got a different name for it, talk to me after the service because this is what I've always called it. But the bag that you take to, uh, like, out of your suitcase that you take into the restroom at the hotel with your toothbrush and maybe some prescription, this and that. I call it a ditty bag. Well, when we open up our luggage and we share what our struggles are, a lot of people, they never open up that ditty bag. Well, my friends, I don't know what sin might be your ditty bag today that been, you've been carrying your whole life that you never want to expose or oppose or kill it and put it to death, but I, I pray that this message would allow you to see that God's grace is going to allow you to do that. But here's my common response when I get to that conversation with somebody is, well, pastor, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm just not that bad of a person. Well, I can, we can keep convincing ourselves of that. But as long as we think that I'm not that bad of a person, grace will never seem that good. As long as we keep convincing ourselves that we're not that bad of a person, grace will never seem that good. Here's some dangerous mistakes that we can make when it comes to sin in our life. We, what is the first thing that we commonly do? We compare ourselves to others. Man, how many times have I done that? When we do that, we dismiss our sins and our need for God's grace and our pride and our self-righteousness are uglier than the sins of the person that we just compared ourselves to. Secondly, we weigh the bad against the good. Our default is to cover up our sin or to minimize it, but in covering up our sin, we are covering up God's grace. In minimizing our sin, we are dim diminishing the joy that comes from forgiveness. Man. Jesus didn't try to make people feel better about themselves by diminishing the seriousness of their sin. No, he called it what it was. He didn't falsely reassure them that they weren't that bad. He called sin, sin. Jesus explained this He's, in this story we're fixing to read. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Jesus explained that the one who is forgiven much loves much. So if you've got your Bibles and you want to read along with me, it's not going to be on the screen. Um, Luke 7, starting in verse 36. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one today. Describe one of us after the service. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. 
Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this woman who, even, who, is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman was a filthy sinner. She was a prostitute. She recognized her needs for God's grace. And she went to the one who could forgive her sins. Her understanding of God's grace proved itself in her actions. Look at this quote right here with me. If the biggest sinner you know isn't you, then you don't know yourself very well. It's about how I felt when I read it first too. But the immediate response I had to myself was I immediately wanted to compare myself to other, others. And I immediately wanted to weigh the bad against the good. You see how that works? Psalms 139, 23 through 24, David writes this psalm. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, my friends, when I examined my heart as David did, I didn't like what I found. It was pretty ugly. Even Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of who I am the foremost. Paul understood that he was a filthy sinner, the worst of sinners, he says. He knew he was messed up, the chief of all sinners. Friends, I'm messed up. I'm really messed up. You get to know me, you get to hang out with me a little more, you'll, you'll, you'll agree to that. And you ask my wife if you don't believe me. So here's a personal story of mine. So I grew up in a great home, great loving parents. Grew up in this community, grew up in church. But there was a time in my life when I was a young lad, I was exposed to something that destroyed my life for over 20 years. I was exposed to pornography. It destroyed me. It ruined me. I idolized it. I fed it. I protected it. I was a slave to it. It was my master. It gave me false hope. It gave me false pleasure. It gave me false satisfaction. It destroyed my marriage and destroyed intimacy. I had guilt and shame for many, many years. I had a good friend share the gospel with me in September of 2011. As I'm walking in the light, I'm walking with Jesus Christ, I'm studying God's word, I'm with God's people, and I'm in prayer. Something started to happen. That guilt and shame that I'd been carrying all those years turned into remorse. That remorse turned into repentance, and I grieved my sin for the first time. The pain that I felt of my sin overcame the pleasure that I received. Let me say that again. The pain that I felt from the sin overcame the pleasure 
that I received. You see, I truly grieved my sin for the first time. I understood grace. I understood God's grace because I understood that Jesus didn't just die to give me eternal hope and glory when I die. He died for the sins now, to give me freedom now. And I was continuing to run back to that sin like a dog returned to its vomit. And if you've ever seen that, it's pretty, pretty disturbing. But that's exactly what I was doing, and that's exactly what many of us in this room and online in Edgewood do. We trust in Jesus to be our Lord and Savior. We want freedom in Christ, but we want to crawl off the altar of grace and return to the sin that he saved us from. Friends, may we not insult God's grace. May we not abuse God's grace. May we walk in the light as he, in the, he is in the light. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, I had godly grief for the first time in my life. What I learned about myself, what I learned about others, is many of us, and many times, we work hard to change our behaviors. Well, we've learned here in Regeneration Ministry, I had the privilege of walking through that this, in this last year, is we know that behavior modification doesn't work. It's a heart transformation in Jesus Christ. You could have put me in a dark room, take away everything from me that would cause me to look at something inappropriate, but what? What has been seen cannot be unseen. And if I entertain those thoughts and I desired those thoughts, what happened? I had a movie reel in my brain, that memory card, if I wanted to wake it up, but I put it to death. Not by my strength, but by God's strength through his grace. It's not behavior modification. You can't modify sin. It's a virus. It can go anywhere. It can adapt to anyone, and it controls anyone. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, I had spiritual heart surgery. Sin is wicked. Sin is evil. We can be told something's wrong. We can be told something's bad, but we are drawn to it, and sin will deceive us. It can entice us. It will put us to death. The sickness of our sin will kill us physically and spiritually. So we've been diagnosed with a sin problem. It's revealed through the law. It's revealed through God's word. And we're, we're all terminally ill patients, my friends. We're all terminally ill, dying of a disease called sin. Romans 5, 12 through 13 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. You see, Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life with no condemnation for everyone. You see, my friends, that's good news. Y'all smile at me. That's good news. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Paul sets up this fantastic equation here. On one side of the equation is our sin, and our sin, again, my friends, is worse than we ever can imagine. You can minimize it. You can rationalize it. You can even try to dismiss it. But we're terminally ill. You have to call it what it is. And on the other side of the equation is God's grace. So Edgewood Online, friends in the room, think about what you may be struggling with right now. What's controlling you? What's in your ditty bag that you haven't exposed? Something that you've, you've been battling for years. You might, you, you might be in a situation where you feel like God's grace can't save you, but God's grace is greater. Y'all say that with me. God's grace is greater. It's always greater. 
Romans 5.15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. There's nothing that you have done that God's grace will not cover. Nothing. Y'all look at this. An explanation of grace without experiencing grace is like being terminally ill and the doctor giving you life-saving medicine, but you refuse to take it. The greatness of God's grace means I don't have to keep trying to convince myself I'm not that bad. The truth is I'm worse than I ever wanted to admit, but God's grace is greater than I ever could have imagined. The woman in Luke 7 knew that. I knew that. I'm a filthy sinner. My sin was bad, but God's grace was greater. Always. I was chained and enslaved to that sin, my friends. I don't know what you're, you're chained and enslaved to today, but I used to try to carry it. I used to try to carry all that weight of that shame and my guilt. And friends, let me encourage you with Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me who are all weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He then says, take my yoke upon you because it's easy and my burden is light. It's his role to carry that, not yours. But I wanted to be in control. I wanted to be the boss of my life. I wanted to be the conductor of the train of everything that I was hauling, everything that I'd worked so hard for. But every time I think things were working out for me, what happened? I ran off the tracks and I derailed and I crashed and burned. I found myself in a funk. I found myself in a dark place and I was miserable. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in me with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but on your ways acknowledge me and I will make your path straight. You see, friends, it's not our job to make our path straight. It's pretty crooked when we get on the road. We will mess it up. But I did so many good works in my life. I did so many things good for other people all the time. But I found that good works can't save me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not by your works, so no man could boast. It wasn't my job to ever work my way to God. That's why he had to work his way to me and you through the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You see, but I was a good moral person. Many of you knew me growing up here in this community. If I would have died 10 years ago, everybody at my funeral, I promise, would have said that Archie Engledow is in heaven. But you see, friends, a good moral person isn't good. Because what does Romans 3.23 tell us? That we all fall short of the glory of God. There was nothing good in me apart from Jesus Christ. Romans 3.10 says that there's no one righteous, not even one. I learned that I deserve eternal separation from a holy God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life is through Christ Jesus our Lord. My sin separated me from a holy God. But I knew that by accepting God's grace and trust, trust in his son Jesus, that I had freedom. I learned that when uh, the gospel was shared with me and my friends. But well, I've done some really bad things. If you guys knew some of the bad things I've done, y'all wouldn't want me talking to you today. I've had people that I've sat with that said, if, if you really knew how much I've done, you wouldn't even want to be sitting in the same room with me. I don't think God can forgive me for what I've done. Well, friends, if that's you, if you've ever thought that, Romans 5, 8 is your verse, that God demonstrated his own own love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and me. There's nothing that you've done that God's grace cannot cover. He died for all sin and it's been paid for. Well, how do I accept God's grace? Well, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, you will be saved. So it's a confession and a belief in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and you will be saved. I did that. 
10 years ago. And I've been living a new life in Christ. And I was so encouraged when I learned Romans 8.1. It says, for there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not condemned to that sin that's separated from my holy God. Jesus broke those chains, and Jesus can break those chains for you, my friends. But he didn't break those chains for me for me to run back to the sin that I was enslaved to. He died for all sin. He, punished, he paid for all sin that punishes us. All sin. I was a slave to it, but now I'm a slave to Christ Jesus. I'm a bondservant to Christ Jesus. I'm not alone to fight that battle anymore. I have God's word, I have God's spirit, and I have his people. And the more time I spend with God, the more I realize I need his grace. I hope that y'all understand that today. The more time that you spend with God in his word, through prayer, in his spirit, and his people, you will realize the more you need grace. Not to abuse it, not to insult it, but you will bear fruit, and you will be healthy, and you will have nutrients in your body that the spirit gives you through his word to live in the light as he is in the light, not to keep running back into the darkness and crawling off the altar of grace, but to live in the light of Jesus Christ. My prayer is that you would trust the great physician, that you would realize and understand what he died for and what he paid for for you and me, that as Paul's argument here is that the law is not bad. The law reveals sin. And as sin is revealed to us, it can entice us and it can deceive us. Okay? But we have a choice to make. Are we going to chase after something that we know is going to hurt us? Are we going to continue to sin so grace may increase? Romans 6.1, by no means. We are to live in the light as he is in the light. Jesus has the cure for our diagnosis, our sin problem. As the MRI machine exposed the cancer in my life, I didn't minimize that because I knew it would kill me. I took it for what it was. As God's word revealed the sin in my life and I searched my heart, I took it as what it was. It was killing me. I brought it into the light. I exposed it. I opposed it. I killed it and I put it to death, not by my strength, but by God's strength through Jesus Christ. Friends, may we acknowledge that we are sick and may we trust the treatment plan that God gives us because our plans will fail every time. But God's word prevails. Let me pray for us, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit and I thank you for your people. I thank you for saving a wretch like me. I thank you for, for restoring the right relationship with you for me. I thank you for allowing my marriage to be healthy, my relationship to my kids to be healthy. Thank you for using me as a vessel, as a bondservant for your glory. And Jesus says, we read this text today and realize the seriousness of sin. May we call it what it is. May we not minimize it. May we not dismiss it. May we oppose it. May we expose it. May we kill it and put it to death because it's killing us. It's a cancer in our body. Your word exposes that cancer. And may we take it for what it is and take it seriously. As we unpack the luggage of our life that we feel like we've been carrying the shame and the guilt, may we open up all areas of luggage of things that we feel like we can't be forgiven for. Your grace covers it all. Jesus, we are weak and you are strong. The moments I thought I was strong, I fell. And you humbled me and I realized that I was not supposed to be driving this life, but you are. May I submit to your authority, Lord, every day. 
man, I do not want to fall on my face. I do not want to run back to the sin that you rescued me from. It will destroy me. Thank you, Father, for allowing me to be in the light. Thank you for your word that guides me and gives me strength and nourishment. Thank you for your people that hold me accountable. Thank you for your spirit that saves me and sealed my heart. Thank you for the heart surgery you gave me. Thank you, Father. Thank you that I've been crucified and I no longer live, but I live with you because of what you've done for me. May my friends in this room and my friends online in the Edgewood recognize that today. May we call sin what it is. And may we run to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the great physician, the one that has the cure, the one that has the great plan. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.